0: It's, it's hard to believe in some ways that this is week five of us gathering back together as a, a larger group of worshipers. And uh, there's been a common sentiment that I have heard um, that our staff and, and leaders have had shared with them is just how good it's been uh, to be able to be together together. Uh, to worship with one another, to be encouraged by one another. Um, we've heard things like, I, I didn't like people, but I missed people. And, uh, and so it's just good to be around. And one of the things I want us to continue just to hold loosely and to think about is that what we are able to experience, even in a socially distanced context, is still... Um, a rich blessing because there are many throughout the world who are worshiping and uh, they're worshiping in basements and in houses with windows and blinds closed. Uh, They never get the opportunity uh, to gather with a hundred other people. And it's such a blessing to be able to worship together. So even though we can be distracted or discouraged by being six feet apart, um, it's still an incredible blessing to worship alongside one another. I wanted to give you just a couple things um, to help you kind of see what lies ahead for us. Uh, we plan, uh, unless something you know drastic changes, to continue to gather uh, for our worship gatherings on Sunday mornings. One of the things that we're monitoring is uh, how many people we can fit in here. And so if consistently we have trouble finding seats for people and maintaining social distance, then we're going to add a third worship experience. And so we're shaping that plan. Uh, we also want to continue uh, to offer uh, and... Um, kids' environments and student environments on Sunday mornings. And that's where the next part of this comes into play. We shared with you on July 5th uh, that if we were able to offer our full programming, we really needed some, some volunteers to, to step up. Many of you are volunteering. We are uber, uber thankful for that. Uh, but because of COVID, uh, we have... Several of our volunteers that are not yet either able to or don't feel comfortable returning to worship. And so that creates some tension points in some of our ministries, Uh, particularly our preschool first hour and our elementary school first hour worship experiences are really stretched right now. Uh, Guest services is stretched a little bit. And so we're asking for those of you that aren't already volunteering, will you pray uh, about one of the serving opportunities that you see on the screen? Would you pray just in general for God to raise up those volunteers, but also to ask God, could I be an answer uh, to my own prayer? On the table just outside the room, uh, there is a list of job descriptions for each of those positions and the contact information for how to let someone know you want to serve. There's a bottle of hand sanitizer right there, so you can sanitize your hands, grab a piece of paper, and, and, and keep yourself comfortable and safe. Uh, but we really need to, to, to have those volunteers to operate and to take care of people and fulfill our mission. Two of our core values are loving and welcoming. And if we can't provide the right number of people in our next-gen environments or in guest services, it's hard to do that. And so if we can't get the right volunteers and we're going to, have to modify plans a little bit, um, that'll either be going to our next-gen programming only at one of our worship services experiences or um, just going to more of a family-style worship uh, each time we meet. Uh, please, 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 please do not hear that as a threat. Don't hear that as a guilt trip. Um, It's just us being transparent. COVID has changed a lot for all of us, right? Um, Things are always changing. And so we just want to be honest. This is where we're at. If we can't offer programming, this is what it means. It just tells us that our church at this time is not quite ready for that. And so we just adjust and we adapt and and we handle that. And so um, that's kind of how things are. I don't know about you but I'm kind of exhausted from all the change. Anybody else? Uh, anybody else just be like, w- what's going to happen next and, and something else happens and it's like, oh man, we'll just pivot and we'll, we'll do something different. So I know you're experiencing that, I'm experiencing that. But here's what I know, is that God always uses our difficult seasons to refine us. There is something that if you are a follower of Jesus, you cannot forget. If you aren't a follower of Jesus, that you cannot get anywhere else. Uh, There is hope because of who God is. There is. If you look throughout history, from the very beginning, through the stories that are recorded in the uh, ancient scriptures, the revealed word of God, all the way through human history, you see a timeless truth that God is faithful. Uh, This isn't the first pandemic, it won't be the last. This isn't the first struggle, it won't be the last. There have been plagues, there's been death, there have been wars, there have been persecutions, there have been difficulties that people who trust in God have faced throughout history and God has proven himself faithful again and again and again. And each time as God proves himself faithful, it's an opportunity for us to learn more about ourselves and be refined in the process. If you take a precious metal and you heat it up, you will see what is pure and what is impure. And hard trials have a way of doing that in our lives. It's like a fire on us. And so in this season, some of you have been like, I didn't know I was that resilient. I I didn't know that I could have gratitude in the midst of difficulty. I didn't know that I was that adaptable or pliable. And some of us have been like, well, I didn't know that little thing lurked in my heart. You know, I, I, I came out in a bad way in that conversation. You start to see some of the impurities that are in you as well. And God uses that to refine us, to shape us, to be the people He wants us to be. And so we're being refined. Hardship does that. When, when we think about Luke's gospel, uh, we've said this all year long. There's, a, there's an opportunity to parallel because as Luke writes his gospel, the believers are, are going through difficulties, they're facing opposition, they're facing uncertainty. And Luke tells us in Luke chapter 1, I think it's verse 4, that he writes these words so that we can have certainty about that which we've been taught. He wants us to have certainty in an uncertain world. He wants us to be faithful in uncertain times. He knows that it's a refiner's fire. And in fact, what he reveals in his gospel is Jesus, who comes to the people of God in a difficult time. He comes into a difficult world. The Jewish people did not have their ancestral homeland. Rome occupied their land, ruled their land. There are difficulties. And yet Jesus continues to confront and to refine with the message of the kingdom of God. What you and I are going to see in the message today, in Luke chapter 11, 37 through 54, is Jesus confront and give an opportunity for some people who had gotten it wrong to be refined and to change their ways. Uh, I'm going to guess that along the way, uh, if you're like me, as I studied this week, there's going to be a little bit of conviction in you, and I hope that you'll feel that and sense that as an opportunity to change and to be refined. The scene is pretty simple in Luke chapter 11. If you look at verse 37, It's not a hard thing to picture. It says, While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him, so he went in and reclined at the table. If you were with us last week, uh, or if you read last week's text, you know that Jesus has healed a demon-possessed man. It uh, instigated a debate. Who is Jesus? Does he do this by the power of the evil one? Does he, is there going to be another sign to prove who Jesus is? And this debate ensues. We know because of Matthew's account of that same thing, Matthew chapter 12, that some of the lead instigators were these religious leaders, the Pharisees, as well as the teachers of the law. or Sometimes they're called lawyers, experts of the law, scribes. And they're kind of the instigators. So Jesus addresses them previously, and then one of them wants to have Jesus for dinner. Uh, And so he invites Jesus over. Jesus comes, and uh, he's hanging out at this Pharisee's house. He's reclined at the table, prepared to eat. Maybe you know this picture from Luke chapter 7. We talked about it earlier this year. There would be a a center table. A feast like this was probably a public spectacle, and each of the people lays uh, legs extended from the table, prepared to eat. Well, the beginning of a meal, uh, someone would go around, and they would offer a bowl Uh, to cleanse the hand. And and so this is what happens, verse 38. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. So the Pharisees astonished, maybe a better word is appalled, uh, surprised to see that Jesus did not first wash uh, before he ate. And so the risk of simplifying this too much, what follows all the warnings from Jesus come because Jesus didn't wash his hands before dinner. I'm going to guess that in your context, whether it's as a parent, as a grandparent, maybe as a teacher, maybe in a workplace, that there have been a few cringe moments over the last few months when you thought someone should have washed their hands and they didn't. Uh, maybe it's happened for you. I've heard a few stories of people in our lobbies and they, they see people uh, you know, shaking a bunch of hands and they reach into their pocket and they grab a mint and they put it in their mouth and, and they're like, oh man, that just scares me. Like, There's a debate that follows because Jesus didn't wash his hands. We're gonna find it's a little more nuanced than that, but it's simplest, Jesus didn't wash his hands and it stirred a controversy. So we have to ask ourselves, why, why would this Pharisee be so astonished be so appalled by Jesus not participating in this ceremonial washing of hands. Here's what I think it's really easy for us to do, myself included. We read the word Pharisee, and because of what we've been taught or what we've heard, we automatically take the Pharisees and we put them in this jar of evil bad people, and Jesus is in the good jar. So we have the Jesus, the good jar, the disciples are in the good jar, and we have the Pharisees, the Roman leaders, and and all all the bad people. And when we do that, it simplifies it a little too much. We don't realize just this bigger portrayal of the Pharisees. I think it's important for us when it comes to this passage. The Pharisees truly believed that they were doing the right thing for God's people and God's kingdom. I think that's important to understand. We see that in our world today. There are people that do the wrong thing, but they really think they're right. Right? You may have a few people racing through your mind. <laughs> the Pharisees really thought the Pharisees kind of rose into power as the sect in Judaism during what's called the Hasmonean period, and so as Judaism was being threatened, these this class rose that treasured and um, just held on to the rules. They have this, this foundational belief that if Israel could be pure, if God's people, God's ancestral people could live pure lives and do what is right, then that would merit God's favor and he would come and he would restore and rescue. So their effort, their work would result in God's favor and ultimately salvation. They believed that God had a special place for Israel. And so they worked hard to make sure that externally people were doing the right things. And so they started grabbing for different procedures and different rituals to ensure that people were pure. One of those was washing your hands ceremonially. It's not in the law of Moses. It's not in the Old Testament. But they said, you know what? If you don't want to be defiled, then you need to wash your hands because if your hands aren't clean and you take food, that food becomes unclean and that food goes into you and it makes you unclean. And that just pushes God's judgment down the line, right? Because Israel's still not pure. Israel's still not right. So when here's this leading teacher of this new movement in Jerusalem and Galilee, and he doesn't follow those orders, it's just like, oh great, now we're gonna wait a little bit longer. We have to work a little bit harder for God to love us and respond to us and rescue us and restore us. So, so Jesus picks up on this and look at his response, verses 39 through 41. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees, cleanse the outside of the cup. And of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. It's probably difficult for us to appreciate just how offensive this statement from Jesus was. Remember, we just said the Pharisees prized this cleanliness, these out, this outward perception of purity, these external acts that would make them uh, look clean in God's eyes. And so they were meticulous. They would not have passed food around uh, a gathering that the dish had been cleaned on the outside but not the inside. They, they, they just prized this cleanliness. And so for Jesus to say, hey, you're like a dish that the outside is really clean, but inside you're a mess, That would have been deeply offensive. But Jesus is pointing out that while their external practices, they were conforming and looking like they were doing the right things, inside their hearts remained unchanged. Jesus says what should have happened is that through sacrifice, giving alms were sacrificial gifts to the poor. Through sacrifice, you should have given what's inside. You should have surrendered your whole heart to God. Give him everything that you are, and then you would be clean. See, what's happening here is we have a battle. Uh, This series is called verses, In this section of Luke's gospel, we see these battles. Last week, it was light versus darkness. So today, you're going to see this battle between rules versus relationships. See, the Pharisees' ideology was work hard, do the right things, God will love you more, and he's going to rescue you. Jesus says, no, God has already done something for you. Let that change your heart and your orientation, and then you obey him because of what he's done. One is based upon relationship. One is done to earn God's favor. It's rules versus relationship. It's a clash. To help you understand this, think about um, our political system in America. I'll just name three parties, Republican, Democrat, Libertarian. Libertarian. At their core, all three of those parties really think they know what's best for the American people. They they really think that they have a picture of how do we help America be the best that it can be. But they each have a different way of doing it, right? So the the Pharisees think this is how God's people fulfill God's purpose. And Jesus says, no, (laughs) that's not how. This is how God's people fulfill God's purpose. It's about what God has done for you. It's about the heart You've heard me use this phrase before. You've maybe heard other places. The heart of the matter is a matter of the heart. Jesus wants to get inside. It's not just about the external obedience. It's not just about conforming, but it's about being transformed. And so as this battle ensues, uh, Jesus issues warnings. Here's what we need to understand. Jesus cared about the Pharisees. I don't think that gets mentioned enough. Jesus came to save all who were lost. So he gives a series of warnings to the Pharisees, hoping, hoping that they will see the error of their ways and they'll change. We have what are called six woes that follow in the next set of verses. There are three woes given to Pharisees and three woes given to their close friends, these lawyers, experts in the law, scribes. Again, those words are used pretty interchangeably. They're warnings. You may say, I've never really heard the word woe before. Here's the first picture that came to my mind. Who, who's seen the Ice Age movie? Anybody? I like cartoons. said the sloth is probably my favorite when it comes to Ice Age. There's this moment in the first Ice Age movie where it's clear that a catastrophe is going to come and the dodos get pretty upset. And so they just start chanting, doom on you, doom on you. You have to watch the movie. It's pretty cool. But it's, it's a woe. It's a, it's a warning to change. A woe was a rebuke that was strong, but it intended a response. So Jesus warns, hoping the Pharisees will change their behavior and they'll look within and they'll focus on the heart, which will lead to the right living versus living rightly, hoping to earn God's favor and him act on their behalf. I don't know. It's been probably 10, 12 years ago. Uh, Audrey and the boys and I were canoeing with her parents over at Kickapoo State Park in, in Illinois. And when we went through our orientation um, for the canoes, they said, listen, when you get towards the end of the journey, You're going to see these large signs that tell you that there is a dam up ahead. And when you see those, you need to follow the directions. You're actually going to have to paddle upstream for a little bit. That's the only way you're going to be safe. And people are asking questions, and they're telling us that if the canoe goes over the spillway, we'll probably all die. And, of course, that makes all your six-, seven-year-olds really excited to go in the canoe And so sure enough, we're on the canoe trip and and, and we get to that part of the stream or the creek, whatever it is we're canoeing. And there are these huge white signs, damn, 5,000 feet, damn, 4,000 feet, arrows pointing this way, like, like go off to the left, take that other stream. They're warnings that intended for us to change direction. That's what a woe is. Jesus is saying, woe to you Pharisees, woe to you lawyers, pointing out something so they will change direction. I'm guessing if you and I have ears to hear this morning, that there will be some things that convict us. And I want you to hear them as a warning from God to to change direction. That if you've drifted towards thinking that somehow your obedience makes you better in God's eyes or better than other people and somehow earns more favor, that that you'll, you'll change course and you'll say, you know what? God wants my whole heart. Where can I comply? Where can I be transformed more into who he is, and what does it look like to live that out towards my fellow man? There's just three observations I want to give you about this passage. The first is this: is that Jesus clearly shows us that the Pharisees and the religious leaders at this point, are missing the point. The Pharisees, these religious leaders, would have known the most important people in their history, men like Abraham, men like Moses. Men like David and Elijah, they would have heard from a very young age that that David was a man after God's own heart. They they would have heard the words of of Samuel, uh, that God gives to Samuel. He says that man doesn't look at outward appearances, but man looks at the heart. So they would have known that the heart mattered, but somehow they'd lost that perspective. They were missing the point. And here's what I know within the body of Christ, all across the world, there are people who sincerely think that they're honoring God, but they're missing the point. For them, their faith has become more about checking the right boxes. Did I give? Did I go to church enough? Did I put enough coins in the Salvation Army bucket? Did I feel bad when I passed the homeless guy? We just want to check the boxes to make sure we're doing the right things, but sometimes our hearts aren't changing. Are you missing the point? Are are you hoping God will, because of his love for you, transform you into more of the likeness of Christ and that result in obedience? Or are you hoping that your obedience will result in more favor and a better place in heaven? Rules versus relationship. Observation number two. Observation number one, the Pharisees and religious leaders are missing the point. Observation number two, they're missing the point because they've got their priorities wrong. I want you to look at the first woe, verse 42. Jesus says, Woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. So he points out that these Pharisees have been meticulous, they want to obey, they want that external purity, they, they, they want that um, perception of having it all right, and so when it comes to tithing, they, they heard the words in the Old Testament. They know that God wants us to, to treat all that we have as his, and so we give him the tithe, and so they, they just take it all the way to the finest detail. They're gardening. All right, here's my mint. I got 10 leaves. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to take one out for God. Here's my cilantro. I had 30 leaves of cilantro. Let me make sure there are three for God. Oh, man, I had incredible harvest of tomatoes. I got 100 of them. Let me make sure God has 10 of them. Like, like, they're just going through everything, a tenth, a tenth, a tenth, a tenth, a tenth, a tenth. So they're committed to being meticulous. But he said, you actually missed the most important thing, justice and love for God. He says, it's not that you shouldn't have tied those things. It's not that we shouldn't give God 10% but not at the expense of loving him and loving others. Those expressions, justice and love for God, reflect a a recurring refrain in God's story. Deuteronomy chapter six, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. Love for God. Justice, Leviticus 19, love your neighbor as yourself. There's words about sticking up for the poor and the oppressed. We have the words of Micah the prophet, Micah 6, verse 8. And what does the Lord require of you but to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with the Lord your God? See, the heart was what mattered most. Do you love him? Are are you allowing him to transform you into the best that he wants you to be and then living out of that? Or are you trying to do all these things like the tenth of your mint and your rue and your herbs and forgetting the heart? let me ask you, what's your priority on? Is your priority your religious duty in doing the right things and checking the boxes? Or is it, God, change my heart. Help me know how to love you and to love other people. Because if you focus on the heart, the natural outflow is to honor God in the ways that he commands. But if we start with the actions, sometimes we miss the heart and we get puffed up with pride. What's your motivation? What's your priority? Is it the heart? Here's my experience in the church: is that oftentimes the longer we've been in the Christian bubble, we talk about bubbles right now. There's the NBA has its bubble, and uh, you know, to keep their their sports safe. In our Christian bubble, if you're living with other people of faith, sometimes it's easy to lose sight and start emphasizing what you do rather than who you're truly becoming. Where's your emphasis? Is the priority the heart? Are you always saying, God, help me? You know, one of the things that saddens me the most is when I hear people say they were hurt by church people. Sometimes that's because there's just somebody who's still being made more into the likeness of Christ, who God's still resolving something in their character, and in their interior world. And that's fine. People learn, they grow, they're forgiven, and they change. But sometimes it's because there are people who say, you know what? I've already arrived. They've got it all figured out. I already do enough. I'm already the person God wants me to be. And so it's okay if I gossip. It's okay if I'm rude. It's okay if I'm, and they don't care. What's the condition of your heart? What's your priority? Observation number three for the Pharisees and for these lawyers is that when they miss the point and they prioritize the wrong things, people get hurt. In Matthew chapter 23, another place where Jesus issues woes to religious leaders, he says, you will travel over land and sea to win a single convert. And when you find them, you make them twice a child of hell as you are. That's strong, right? I mean, that's not like great Starbucks conversation. But he's saying you you, you corrupt them by your example. As you live for these rules versus out of a relationship, other people get hurt. The way you live towards them hurts them. They learn from you. They start following your steps and they hurt other people. This is reflected in the woes as well. Look at verse 44. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves and people walk over them without knowing it. In the Old Testament law, there were prescriptions or commands that had to do with how you handle dead bodies. And it was because uh, in a time that's far distant from ours, if you were around a dead body, chances are there were bacterias and diseases that you could get and you could come and you could affect other people. And so for that reason, they couldn't come in contact. One of the ways they got around that is that they would paint graves so that you didn't come in contact with a dead body. Jesus says, you Pharisees are like unmarked tombs. People don't even know that you reek of death. And they come near you and they're affected. When we live for rules and we miss the heart, we hurt other people and other people watch us. If you're a parent, if you're a grandparent, if you've got friends that aren't yet followers of Jesus, they're watching you. And how you live your faith often will be reflected in them as they live out their faith. This is why in our own nation, even within people that would consider themselves followers of Jesus, there's still tremendous bigotry because they've watched it. And someone's done the right things. They've checked the right boxes. They put money in the offering plate. They gave through the app. They showed up at church week after week. They were part of a Bible study. They read Our Daily Bread, but God never changed their heart, and it's seen in how they treat other people. And what happens is, is their kids learn that. Their grandkids learn that. Their friends learn that. And so when we live that way, when we miss the point, when we treasure rules over relationship, it hurts other people. He says the same thing for the lawyers, verse 52. What are you, lawyers? For you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. These lawyers are not lawyers as you think of them, like someone in a law office representing national law. These are people who are experts in the Old Testament law. Uh, a word that's called Torah. It's the instructions of God. They're experts in God's instructions. There were 613 commands in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Some are good, do this. Some are bad, don't do this. They knew them inside and out. They were in the best position to help the people of God become the very best of who they could be. They had the key, but they missed it. It's not only do other people not enter, but they themselves don't enter. They hurt other people when they don't, Look at the heart. What about you? Are you about the relationship? This is who God is. This is what he's done for you. And his favor and his response towards you is what fuels your love for others and for him. Or are you a person that says, no, I I need to do these things to make God love me more and to be better in his eyes and maybe even be better than the people around me. Is it rules or relationship? Is it conforming? Or transforming. Is it the inside first or the outside? I told you this is a clash of ideology. It's a class of theology. It's, it's two different perspectives. And, and Jesus says, I want you to get it right. I have to tell you as a follower of Jesus, I want you to get it right. I want our hearts, if you're a disciple of Jesus, to beat first for him to be consumed with allowing Him to shape you and mold you so that as you do good things, they're out of the motivation of what He's already done for you. And that we would live with humility and kindness and gentleness and faithfulness and all the fruit of the Spirit towards Him and others. Will we be people characterized by rules or relationship? This last week, um we got the opportunity to, be, to take in two different theatrical performances, two different homeschool groups in, in our area. Uh, one did the play Sherlock Holmes. Another did the musical Beauty and the Beast. And, and what was so fascinating from mainly teenagers is how uh, so many of these actors and actresses just really took on the role. Like they got into character. And it was like sometimes you were watching and you're like, holy cow, they're owning that in this moment. Do you know when drama coaches coach actors and actresses, they talk to them about finding their motivation? Uh, I'm going to date myself a little bit, but when I was in junior high and high school, Sprite had a commercial with an actor, and he would ask, he would say, excuse me, excuse me, what's my motivation? Like, like what is it that's going to motivate me to own this role? And so for those actors and actresses in these two performances this week, those that got behind the character, Belle and Beauty and the Beast, were like, this is who she is. This is what makes her tick. They owned it on stage. Sherlock Holmes, those that, that got into the character, they owned it on stage. You and I have a role to play in God's kingdom, but we have to find the right motivation. And the motivation is who God is and what He's done for us in Jesus Christ. And that's the hope that we have, and that fuels us to love Him and to love our neighbor, to be people characterized by justice and love for God, to prize the relationship over the rules. Our obedience flows out of our love for God and love for others and what He's done for us, rather than to earn that love and favor. Let's be a people who are characterized by relationship and living out of that rather than rules. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you for your love and your hope and your mercy. And God, as we worship you, will you shape us? God, will you convict us in those places where maybe we've lost sight of the heart? God, if there are places where we've ignored, where we're unwilling to see the the bitterness or the difficulty that's taken root that affects how we love others, will will you convict us, Father? Will you reveal that? Will you refine us? God, for those that don't yet know you, may they see that there is hope in you, that you have a better way, and may they take the bold step to to talk with someone about coming to follow you and to find your hope in your life. God, thank you. Thank you for warning us strongly so that we can change. And it's in your name we pray and trust and hope the name of Jesus. Amen.